0: closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey,
1: hey. Hey there, this is Mike Friedman from Critical Mass. We're recording here in Houston today with Professor Tim Jackson, a professor of sustainability at the University of Surrey. Now, Tim, there's some other work you've done of a more official capacity, isn't there?
0: Yeah, I have a, a I have had until well, i still have it until march next year a policy advice role to the uk government which is um, something called the sustainable development commission
1: which unfortunately has received the brunt of budget cuts since the uh, government like ended. so
0: many things um arms length bodies giving advice to government um is a is, is a prime target for the axe to fall on and sadly it did so
1: and you uh, you were effectively the economics commissioner, is that correct? I was
0: economics commissioner, yeah. yeah right. Certainly.
1: Okay, so um, so you were the economics commissioner there, and one of the, the main reason why we're here today is to talk about economics as they relate to this wildly overused phrase, sustainability. Sure. So could you, uh, for people like me who aren't economists, who aren't experts, can you give us a brief explanation of what this idea of the economy is, how it relates to the way we really live? Because I think it's just this capitalised letter, the big E economy.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, in, in some level it is, but actually it's just what we do. We buy stuff, which is made by someone. So, you know, it's production and it's consumption in the language of economics. And so it's how that works and where the money comes from to invest in the factories that make the stuff and where the money comes from to by the things that we consume so and and there's something called the circular flow of the economy which is should be in principle is very nice is that basically firms produce goods for us and they also provide us with incomes which we then spend on on more goods and services and that's why it's a circular flow because the money goes from the firms to us through our wage packet and then back to the firms through the shops and that's you know that's a little in a very very simple nugget type form that's what the economy is but it gets really complicated when you start to introduce lending and borrowing because then you get a whole financial sector which thinks it's the most important sector in the world and grows itself to the point where it crashes spectacularly which is what happened two years ago and then you have also a kind of what's called the traded sector which is which is that we import and export lots of stuff so the stuff that we consume here isn't all made here it's made in india and china and all sorts of places where the pollution doesn't count on our balance sheet and and here we can keep our nice high consumption lifestyles going and even reduce our carbon emissions Also, it looks like you know we can even do environmental things look like we're doing environmental things but we're doing it by exporting our pollution
1: we're outsourcing everything including the downside to our consumption
0: yeah absolutely that's what we're doing at the moment
1: and um that's part of the dilemma we're facing right now during this current crisis, isn't it, that we've, over the past few decades, really cut back on the amount of goods and services and produce that we manufacture or grow here, because it's either cheaper or more convenient to buy from other countries than it is to have a productive manufacturing and agricultural sector here in the UK.
0: Yeah, you still got to be able to afford to pay for all that stuff. But systematically over the last few decades, we've shifted the basis of our of our production into uh, service sector, into retail, into um, financial services. You know, that was a big growth area for us. A nation of
1: shopkeepers and shelf shelfstanders. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, and 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 of and of bankers. You know, that that was the that was the the big thing of the nineties. And Britpop. That was the other thing. We also, which the Labour government loved when it came into power in 1997, you know, we were going to create a whole new industry of Britpop, uh, which we have done to some extent, you know, X Factor rules. So it's, that, it's that kind of that entertainment culture, then a little bit of new tech, financial services and retail is what we've built our production on.
1: Well, your point about Britpop, that's actually a very good way of segueing into something that I've always found stunningly short-sighted about economic policy or rather economic theory, which is there's the... What is it? The law of substitutability, isn't it? Yeah. That any product in an economy can be replaced with some other product because the only measure is the financial value. So we, for instance, we can theoretically replace the value to our economy that we get from growing vegetables by... Exporting music that other countries buy, yeah, and somehow that's the same uh, thing. That's
0: exactly what we've done. I mean, we, we, we did that. We we ran down our agriculture sector even before we ran down our manufacturing sector. So we we, we don't produce all the food that we eat here, and uh, we don't produce all the goods that we need here either. Even basic goods like you know clothes and 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 computers and homes and bits of furnishing in our homes and all that stuff um, is not homegrown british produce anymore it's part of a globalized economic system and to pay for it well we need something to sell to other people and and that has been financial services Britpop, pop a little bit of new technology and and an odd little leftovers of, of kind of manufacturing for export
1: reminds me of that song that wimpy used to sing in popeye i would gladly pay you tuesday for a hamburger today yeah it's paying with a song
0: yeah 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 <laughs> yeah absolutely and
1: um you also touched on something else that i wanted to get some kind of clarity from you on which is this idea of a globalized system Mm. of finance and economy, which I think is very remote from a lot of people. The term globalization is up there with sustainability and the economy
0: Mm. as these
1: words that we see and hear every day, but that the average person, people like me, who might not have the time on their hands to do research and meet people like yourself, don't really know what they mean. They're just words. Can you clarify what that globalized system is is that possible
0: <laughs> well i mean the good news is that nobody really <laughs> knows what it means so you know in kind of good company there but i mean it, it has different components to it some people talk about globalization as um you know our ability actually to connect people over the other side of the world to have communications networks that are global but the term I- in economics turn it really refers to the globalization of of trade it refers exactly to that business of saying well it doesn't matter what i produce here as long as i produce something that i can sell to somebody in the world that gives me the money to then buy from other people in the world the things that i need to live on then that's fine that's and and it's um you know it's a system in which the the miles just the, f- the miles that our food travels billions of miles to get the stuff that we need to feed the uk population in a year because it's coming from all sorts of places in the world and sometimes we manufacture bits of it here we export it halfway across the world to be processed and then we import the finished product a yogurt maybe um in, in back into the uk and it's travelled uh, you know i don't know 6000 miles in order to get from where it first started to where we actually consume it and it's that that sort of create that's that sense of globalization is that things stuff moves around a lot and it moves around because the trade system is supposed to be open that we're supposed to buy things and sell things to each other right the way across the world and this and is that based on
1: this idea sorry this is based on this idea that somehow trade is a much more effective way of preserving peace between countries well
0: that is very i mean one of the th- the first thing that it started out is that trade is efficient you know that there are specific advantages that one country has in producing one certain thing it's called comparative advantage and it sort of says so we're very good here at producing Britpop, pop so that's what we're going to do you know and then that's going to be an export that everyone will want and and it'll pay for us to then to buy don't you know cheese which actually the swiss are very good at producing so and, and and we keep that comparative advantage and we open out trade as much as possible and that is efficient so efficiency was the first argument and it's okay up to a point until you begin to factor in all the environmental impacts of having a system where stuff has to move billions of miles each year to get to where it's consumed. Um, and, and that hasn't been done. I mean, we've, we've called it efficient, but we've somehow you know factored out all the costs to do with the environment, to do with the social conditions under which some of it's produced. I mean, clothing, for example, low-cost clothing produced with child labour, in countries where the environmental conditions are horrible, it all disappears from the equation. It's seen as an efficient way to get clothes because we can buy cheap clothes that we throw away next week on the, in the supermarket or in, in the stores, in the retail stores, and that's, that's called efficiency.
1: But then what we're really talking about then, getting back to your description of economics as this kind of feedback loop, yeah. what we're really talking about is a system that measures really only quantity rather than quality. Because obviously you can say that a t-shirt that'll last me for a year that's made here is no different from a t-shirt that's made in Bangladesh that'll last me for a year. But it's only when we inject kind of, I guess, moral value terms in terms of the quality of that, not just in the product itself, but also in it was made by children that we wouldn't treat that way here. Yeah. When we ignore those costs—the social costs, the environmental costs—what we're really doing is we're kind of giving economics leeway to do things to our environment that we don't like because we don't know that they're not thinking about it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that—that is—that is a lot of what's happening. It's a long way away. Um, um, you know, there was a lovely study a few years ago about what do poor people think about rainforests and. The quote was: "It was a colleague of mine who did it." The quote was: "Rainforests are a long way from here." You know, I don't, I don't, I don't need to think about that. I don't want to think about that. I can't even sometimes. I can't afford to think about that. My assumption is, and again, I've done quite a lot of this work with with people you know, talking about their assumptions about the economic system, my assumption is that somebody somewhere must surely have fixed those problems because it would be obscene to have children working in those conditions in countries far away and that that's what my life is built on. And actually, it is. You know, nobody nobody did look at it. Nobody did check it. Nobody did make sure the labour conditions were safe or that the rivers weren't being polluted and yet was still buying the stuff. And that's, it comes as a shock, actually, to people when they discover, I think, what what the real conditions of labor and environmental standards are in the places where people are making the stuff that we buy.
1: Well, it's the hot dog rule, isn't it? That if people knew what went into a hot dog, no one would eat it.
0: It is kind <laughs> of that. I mean, people do still eat them with that kind of vague knowledge in the back of their mind. Eyelid, but, uh, eyelids and hooves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it is. it's kind of scary, but it's... And, and and in a way, there's nothing wrong with... I mean, if 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 you if it was better environmentally to have a T-shirt made in Bangladesh and you did protect the kids and pay them a decent wage or, or you know, hopefully not too young kids because the education really does matter in those countries as well, but if you protected the, the labour force and gave them good conditions and the environmental impacts weren't bad and you paid a fair price for that, then maybe there's nothing wrong with it. But that's not what we're doing. That's not what the system incentivizes. The system incentivizes something which, as you said, is a kind of, uh, you know, very restricted version of efficiency based around simple quantity of throughput of goods.
1: Now, you hit on something else, which I think is is fairly key, which is that we suffer from a kind of double-edged sword where, on the one hand, we're not informed enough about where our goods come from and how they're produced. But on the other hand, whenever someone begins inquiring or whenever something comes to light, then automatically this huge PR machine kicks into action saying, well, if we got rid of those jobs, then the people in those countries would be worse off because somehow there's this idea that if we weren't taking their children and herding them into sweatshops to make our T-shirts, that somehow these people would be dying like flies. And... It creates this moral quandary where we're told that being too moral is immoral in this strange way that, yeah, by by worrying that we're paying people pennies in the pound to make our T-shirts, we're saying really that we're going to take those pennies away from people that really need them. And it puts you in this position where every time I have clothing that wears out, I go out to buy it, and I'm guilty from the moment I leave my house. I can't show up at the store and go, okay, I'll take the one that's labeled non-sweatshop. I'll take, you know, we're put into this moral swamp from the get-go.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a deeply self-serving argument and it's quite, you know, it's, it's perverse, really. Um, pernicious. It's, it's a horrible argument. I mean, you know, if you, if, if you take moral responsibility and you do that to it, you say, if you don't work in this system, then you're actually doing wrong to the people who are already being screwed that by that system it, it's it's simply it's it's undermining any idea of of the moral authority of the individual i mean you there are still things that you can do you can you know give your money to for example the agencies that are seeking to reduce poverty and improve working conditions in those countries or you can pay a fair price through some of the 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 fair trade initiatives which make sure that those conditions are improved or you can simply boycott those actions because actually they are harming children removing them from education and and not contributing to a genuine poverty in 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 those countries and the the theory that somehow we have to keep on consuming rubbish to employ people who can then you know become a little bit richer so that they can consume rubbish and destroy everyone's environment in the process is just it's ridiculous really i mean it just it ne- doesn't stack up anywhere the trickle down theory it was called and it kind of goes like this that we get richer and richer and that's okay because we're spending money on people who will then have jobs who will then get richer themselves and the money is supposed to trickle down there's a very famous quote which said that a rising tide raises all boats and so as long as the global economy grows and grows and grows eventually you might have people who are obscenely rich but you will eventually lift people off the bottom. And it just didn't work. It hasn't worked. There are still um, three billion people living on less than $2 a day, nearly half the world's population living on less than the price of, of, of a cappuccino in a London cafe. You know, it's just, it's that level of failure, really, of that idea. And to sort of then remove moral authority from individuals who want to create change is obscene.
1: When I first heard that phrase about the rising tide lifts all boats, we were talking to Brian Check, who I know you've spoken to, um, and what occurs to me is there's a missing part of that phrase, which is a rising tide lifts all boats if everyone has a boat, yeah. but really a rising tide drowns anyone who mm. doesn't have a boat, mm. and that's what we're doing, really,
0: yeah, is yeah. it's,
1: I'm all right, Jack, pull the ladder up. That's what we're doing, Really.
0: there's there's a real sense of that you know you don't have a boat or you have a boat with holes in or you have a (laughs) boat that doesn't weather the storm I mean that's those are the conditions of life in 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 half of the world's population And, and the system actually has served them very poorly actually it's even served us very poorly if you look at the historical evidence you find that most of the OECD nations the richer nations are more unequal now than they were 20 years ago. There was a a report by the OECD which said exactly that, growing unequal, it was called. It said, yeah, we've had all this growth, fantastic, but it's a more unequal society than it ever was. And and the one thing we know for sure is that that inequality really hurts. It doesn't just hurt the poorest, it hurts everyone to live in that kind of society. There
1: was um, a fabulous study done with uh, monkeys where they found that monkeys love, uh, I think it's grapes, and so what they did was they provided a, an array of tasks, and the monkeys were rewarded with grapes. And then I think there was something else that they liked more, like either cherries or raisins or something like that. This was a study quoted by Franz Duvall in his book, in a Rape. And, uh, and basically what happened was they rewarded some monkeys with what monkeys thought was a nice surprise. And what happened is as soon as those monkeys got the better stuff, none of the other monkeys would work for the grapes. <laughs> you know, and it's so basic, this idea that inequality causes instability.
0: Mm, But mm.
1: even recently, you know, uh, you have bankers coming out saying, you know, inequality is the way that we all become more equal. It's this Orwellian inversion of language that makes Mm. no sense to me.
0: Yeah, if if it, you know, there was a point at which you could get away with that argument, maybe. I mean, there was a sense, there was a guy called Simon Kuznets and he did this bit of work which said, inequality is like uh, it's a price that you have to pay you go through this pain to get to development but once you get to a certain point then your economy kind of turns itself around and it starts making people more equal again and I mean goodness knows where he dreamed it up from maybe it was a nice idea in theory but in practice it hasn't happened at all like that we we've got more unequal we have created more unequal society we got to a point Thirty or forty years ago, where we started thinking about how to redress inequality in in Britain, and and did actually bring inequality down for a while, and then actually the Tory government, the last Tory administration, the Thatcher administration. Thatcher administration, completely reversed it. And when Labour came into power, you would think, oh well, you know, here's a chance of doing something about it. But actually, it got worse under Labour. And, and there are some reasons for that. I mean, there's, you know, this idea that actually the inequality is what drives us towards growth and growth is what we want. And by creating unequal societies, you create all these incentives to people to climb to the top of the pile over each other. And that this is the way to get a good society because it will promote growth. It's just it, it's failed on almost every way. I mean, the growth based society hasn't reduced inequality. It's deeply unstable in its own terms. The financial crisis was exactly because we were so fast pursuing growth that we didn't think about the stability of our financial markets. We didn't want stability in those markets. We wanted them to prime growth for us, and what we got was collapse. And then you know, the other most fundamental point, in a way, is that this growth-based society has has plundered the Earth's resources and degraded the world's environments, and, and, and it just hasn't worked.
1: And now that you've brought it up, this is the crux of what I wanted to talk to you about. Economic growth is another one of these terms that we hear all the time. And it's almost universally painted in very vague terms as the way forward. Everything that we hear from our politicians that we see released to the press is always, this is the way we're going to return to growth. We're in trouble because we're no longer growing. Mm. There, There is... This kind of singular measuring stick Mm. that positive growth in terms of a percentage increased on last year's purchasing on last year's production on last year's consumption is the only way that we can gauge how we're succeeding can you explain what economic growth is because this is again (laughs) one of those terms that is functionally meaningless unless it's defined clearly and that was one of the things I was hoping to get from you
0: I can I can have a go at that, and I also think I ought to say something about why politicians are so hooked on it. Um, so, so first of all, what is it? Well, it, the economic output is the total amount of goods and services that are produced in the economy, and the value, the economic value of all those goods and services. That's that's what uh, economic output is, and that's called something called the gross domestic product GDP. And so, growth means that the GDP this year is bigger than it was last year. And that's what it means. I mean, it means the economy is getting bigger and bigger. There's more products and services being produced. That means we've got more incomes. That means we can spend more. That means we can s- consume more. That means more factories have to produce more goods and services. And so it's, a, it's if you like, it's a virtuous, it's supposed to be a virtuous circle that expands the products and services that we can buy. It provides us with jobs. And and it, it gives us, uh, the idea is it gives us a, a better quality of life. And that's that's the economic rationale that we've lived with for 60, 70 years.
1: Now, this idea of economic growth in itself, like you said, (laughs) a friend of mine uh, once told me that there's a town in Canada called Theory, where everything works. (laughs) The minute you leave the town limits, things fall apart. And this is one of those things, isn't it, where economic growth falls apart once you put into practice the idea that the amount we can grow is unlimited. Because it presumes that the amount of space in which we can grow is unlimited.
0: Yeah, yeah, it kind of worked. It kind of worked, you know, when the economy was small and and the planet was still large. And actually, as the economy grown and grown and grown, we've actually reached a point where, uh, you know, it really does have an impact on the planet. Resources are scarcer. Environmental space is scarcer. The climate is degraded. The water supplies are, are more polluted. You know, there are particles of plastic in the most pristine environments in the Arctic and, and and in the middle of rainforest. You can pick up industrial products. The detritus of modern society has found its way into every pristine corner of the planet. We are no longer a small economy with a big planet to live from. We are a big economy with diminishing space. And that's why that model no longer works. But the difficulty is, and this is why politicians get so hung up on it is that that the economy also provides us with jobs so we we prize the idea of efficiency we think efficiency is a good thing and so efficiency in terms of people's time is also a good thing so we like to produce more things next year with the same number of people so each person produces more and more economic output each year and that's actually a lot of where growth comes from is by having a labor force that's capable of producing more and more goods each year but it's a it's this is a really double edged sword because if you're producing more and more things each year with each worker and your economy doesn't grow what does that mean it means basically that somebody's out of a job so <laughs> you know you it's fantastic you've done things more efficiently you've got it's called labor productivity the productivity of labor so you're doing more things with each worker but unfortunately, if you don't manage to grow your economy, someone's out of a job. Same thing next year. If you don't grow your economy, someone's out of a job. And if they're out of a job, they can't spend money. If they can't spend money, then there's no shopping power in the economy, so people will produce less, so someone else is unemployed. And it's like, instead of that virtuous circle, you get into a, a vicious cycle. And it all comes from this idea that what the economy should be doing is chasing labor productivity, doing more and more each year with the labor force that you have
1: well to me a perfect example of what you're talking about is in my local supermarket they put in these self-serve checkout machines yeah to me this is a typical example of exactly the wrong approach to the way you run a business because the thinking is obviously it's more efficient you can put eight of these self-serve checkouts where there used to be two checkout Mm -hmm. conveyor belts you only need one person to oversee the eight to run around if there's technical problems, and effectively your customers do the work that yeah. you were paying a person to do because yeah. between the machine and the customer, the job is done, so you can cut the number of people you have to pay to do a job yeah.
0: and it's the- labor productivity is what it's called exactly. you know? it's, 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 the, it's the it's the holy grail of the capitalist economy so and and you see the same thing in the train stations you know why we confronted at every turn in this country and some other countries as well now with barriers at our train stations. This was a public service where, where we could go from one place to the other. Of course, you have to pay for it. But now we have barriers that actually physically stop us getting on the train unless we put our tickets through the barriers. And you know the irony is often the barriers don't work or they, they work for a while and then they stop working or, or they don't work at first because people don't know how to use them. So you have all these people standing around manning automatic barriers and even the labour productivity gains that you hoped to get out of them don't materialise. It's a little bit the same in, in supermarkets at the moment. You, you still could achieve
1: the same revenue protection by paying five people to check tickets instead of building five yeah. machines. Or
0: even engendering a an atmosphere of trust where people understand that transport is a public service that if you don't pay for it then you're taking money from someone else. It's theft not to do it. And so actually you know, in Europe, in some countries in Europe, that Sense of public trust is much stronger, and actually, all you have to do is you know you validate, have you, you your, validate ticket when your ticket, you get ticket on the train, yeah. and you get on the train. And and what we do, in fact, by creating the structures that prevent us even from getting onto the platform, it's no longer our system. It's no longer something that belongs to us. It's no longer something we care about. It's top down. It's top down. It's controlled by a machine, and the machine is 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 an inefficient way of creating public service. And and it's um, and I mean where. If that's an example of where labour productivity doesn't work, think about this one, you know, doctors. What, what, does it make more sense that your doctor sees more and more patients each hour every year? That's labour productivity, if you can get and to see more people in, in a given hour. Of course, you want access to a doctor. Of course, you want health service, but you don't just want a diminishing proportion of their time you know last year it was 10 minutes this year it's nine and a half minutes if you get an appointment next year it will be eight minutes and this is this is a place where the pursuit of labor productivity doesn't make any sense it doesn't work with teachers do you do you want your teachers to have bigger classroom sizes no it doesn't work with care workers do you want your social workers to be seeing more people in each day will it give a better service or a worse one? but and this actually, is
1: back to the quantity versus quality exactly
0: is it? It, it even in terms of quantity you could uh, well i mean the quantity measurement is how many people you see or how many kids in the class or how many you can put through the sausage machine the hamburger machine whatever it is you know it, it it's it's it is about the quality of the education the quality of the human relationship and the quality of the working experience itself and so there's a whole range of jobs in which actually it's about the time that we put into the job as people that is the value that we're exchanging with each other in, in the service. And labor productivity doesn't just thwart that. It, it actively undermines the quality of work, the quality of service, and indeed, ultimately, the working experience itself.
1: I've, I've lived in the United Kingdom since 1985. In the past 25 years, also, yeah, sure, I was living with my parents. Then I moved out when I was 18. So let's only talk about the past, what is it, 11 years since I Mm -hmm. moved out of the house. In the past 11 years, I have tangibly noticed less available jobs, less satisfaction when in employment. And the people who work in places know less about what they do. And this isn't because they're stupid. This isn't because they're bad people. It's because the emphasis is less and less about training people for a personal investment in a rewarding task. Mm -hmm. And more and more about just getting bodies in the room when you need them Mm -hmm. and cutting people out of the equation whenever possible. And I remember reading a book by E.F. Schumacher called Small is Beautiful, Mm -hmm. where he says that the biggest problem we have in our Western idea of what economics should be is this idea that somehow the less time people spend working and the more leisure time they have is itself a desirable thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the the real irony is that we didn't get the extra leisure time either. We did for a little bit, but then actually the productivities in the economy began to slow down naturally. And so, in order to keep growth going, we had to persuade people to work more. In fact, we've worked more since one thousand nine hundred and ninety-five than than in in the last ten years than we did in the previous decade. So, in the decade, the one that you were describing, almost from when you came to London, eighty eighty-five to ninety-five. Um, we did get a little bit more leisure time in the economy. We took some of the productivity gains in terms of less work time and that's not a bad thing to think about doing if we if we do have productivity in the economy
1: and if the work you're doing is valuable and, and personally if it's valuable
0: rewarding. work yeah absolutely then and then why not take that productivity gain not as growth in the economy but as less time actually in work that's a really interesting thing to do it's and it has a long pedigree actually John Maynard Keynes wrote this lovely essay in 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 1932 called economic possibilities for our grandchildren and basically what he was saying is our economies by being more productive would free us in fact not just to be consumers and producers and workers and shoppers but people who could actually have a good quality of life, time spent with our family, time in our community, doing things that we love and that matter to us. And, and that's what he saw, he saw a time when the economy would have delivered its productivity gains and we would then be spending less time making the stuff that we needed and we'd concentrate on our own quality of life. And it didn't happen because we got stuck in a system that just kept pursuing, single-mindedly pursuing that goal, growth productivity growth if you don't grow when you've got productivity growth you push too many people out of work so uh, there'll be unemployment and then then where are we we're in a situation where jobs equals growth and any politician who says uh, sorry guys we, there's not going to be any jobs next year is out of a out of a job i mean they're, they're out of office you know if firms go out of business people get out of jobs governments find themselves out of office but
1: but don't you find that this in itself Is very short sighted because the idea that we can promote this idea of growth, the Mm -hmm. idea of the idea of growth, relies on the fact that that growth can continue forever. So it's like musical chairs. We can all keep walking around, and as long as there's always enough chairs when the music stops, we're okay. But the one time there's some chairs missing, and some people are out, the cycle stops. And when that stops, I get the feeling that that's what we're in now. People talk about a return to growth or a double-dip recession or all of these, again, economic terms that are functionally meaningless to real people because they're not fully explained or clarified. And what I find is maybe we've reached the point where we can't grow anymore. And this isn't a recession before we get back Mm -hmm. to business as Mm -hmm. usual in inverted commas. But
0: Mm.
1: actually, this is where the music stops and there's just not enough chairs. And because we didn't think this would happen, we're now here... And we've still got more people showing up to the party and there's nothing to ha- there's nothing yeah, to go yeah. around.
0: No, absolutely a really nice analogy. There's a lovely quotation actually from I think it was Citicorp, one of the businesses that went belly up during the recession. But just before it went belly up, there's this lovely quote from the CEO who said, you know, liquidity is 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 like a dance for as long as the you know, when the music stops there's gonna be trouble. But for now it's still playing and we're all out dancing. And, and it is this sort of odd thing that, that we can see the trouble coming down the line. We don't know exactly when it's going to come, but it has to be there because we know that we live on a finite planet. We know these dynamics are pushing us in unsustainable directions, but somehow we just keep dancing and hope that the music won't stop. And, of course, you know, that's what happened in 2008 was it did, almost completely, not quite. You know, we bailed it out by massive public debts to save the very people who'd created... The crisis, This is what I mean, it's like it a battered wife
1: away. going to prison with her life savings to bail out the husband that's yeah. going to continue beating yeah. her, it's no, insane. It, is.
0: it is, is, is a form of you know, um, emotional and, and uh, physical addiction, really, almost what, what we're in, we're kind of addicted to growth.
1: In this idea of growth, it's not just raw economics, it's not just a bunch of nerds with calculators in the nerdery making their theoretical charts and saying, well, we need X amount of this, blah, blah, blah. There are real people in real places that show up and they need food and they need shoes and they need clothing yeah. and whatever. And how much of that growth in our economy is driven by a growth in population? How can we, well, rather, is it possible to address one type of growth without talking about all the types of growth? Mm. Because that's really the dilemma, yeah, isn't yeah. it? No one wants to talk about population. Mm. Because it involves reassessing things that we've taken as completely red for so long now. Mm. I so mean, the
0: population issue is, is definitely coming back on the table. There's actually there's a Royal Society working group on what's called people and planet, but it's I mean one of its motivations is to look at population issue, and, and it's a very very simple equation in a way that you know the impact that we have on the environment is the product of the number of people, the level of affluence, and the technologies that they're using. And iPad, and iPad is the is the equation, and um, and the the uh, so so your your impact on the environment is going to increase if your population increases it's going to increase if the level of affluence the richness of each of those people on the planet increases and the only thing to keep anything down you know to keep that impact down is is how clever you can be in relation to technology how do things more efficiently, then you can have a few more people because the impacts will be reduced. But then you have
1: Warren Jevons's paradox, don't then you?
0: you? you have, yeah, you do things more efficiently, and that pushes your abilities to grow the economy. And so, you, yeah, I mean, then you have to run faster and faster. So, the technology is something that continually has to run faster and faster. It's
1: so, again, Jevons's this paradox. potentially virtuous circle becomes a vicious yep. cycle because you become, like yep. you said earlier, a hamster exactly. on a wheel chasing. Exactly this Mm. consistent increase that is only so possible with so much Mm. space
0: so population population really does matter i mean it's a very interesting parameter um if you look over the last 50 years and you look at the world as a whole you find that the carbon emissions are about equally a result of more people and more affluence higher income so it's about equal the influence of population and income on carbon emissions um if you look over the last 15 to 20 years though actually what you find is that incomes have become more important than population as a factor and if you think about the future the the sort of so-called demographic change with population rates declining it it the 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 impact of income growth becomes more important than the impact of population growth but that doesn't mean to say that population growth isn't important It, it just says it's a it's a scaling factor it's not Maybe quite so important as ing- as as the idea of continual growth is going to be, and it's something that we still need to watch. And there's a really interesting uh, way of thinking about this, which is if you think maybe you know if you could accept just for a, a couple of minutes in theory that the richest economies, the richest people in the richest economies, already have enough. i know it's a radical (laughs) it's a radical thought Uh, but when actually when you look at the poorest people in the poorest economies uh, you just it becomes blindingly obvious you know countries with life expectancies of less than half what we would expect here life expectancies of 40 are not uncommon across sub-saharan africa really poor quality of life low educational levels this is where income difference really makes a difference but it's also it makes a difference not just in improving quality people's quality of life but actually in bringing down the fertility rate particularly if you do it in the right way what you know is that as people as countries go through that income growth the poorest countries go through income growth their fertility rate comes down the rate of childbirth comes down and so you know you go from six children per woman to, to 1.9 or two through in that in those poorest countries by getting those poorest countries to be richer to have better educated women in particular and creating social service structures which protect the health of children and so it's in a way it's an argument which says you know it it really is about making room for growth income growth where it really matters and you could do you could not only just reduce your impacts in the richest ca- countries by doing that by sacrificing that growth in the richest countries you could actually improve qualities of life in very real ways and reduce population growth at the same time through that sort of strategy
1: so it's almost like the old proverb of you know when i was a child i thought as a child i spake as a child but when i grew up i put away childish things it's almost like economic growth worked in the sense that it brought us so far. Mm -hmm. But it's not that you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't say, oh, it's terrible because we're now in a terrible place. We went about it very irresponsibly, very unthinkingly, and we made it the end in itself rather than Mm -hmm. understanding the means that it really was. So it's almost as if economic growth can work if it's framed as part of an overall process where economic growth can make a real difference to people who really are in need. But once you achieve, you know, it's like the threshold hypothesis that over a certain amount of income, you don't become any happier. You Mm. just buy more stuff. That when everyone can get to a certain basic level of human dignity and maybe not even affluence, but at least ability to live outside of pure subsistence, Mm. economic growth can work until then but then you have to reassess your strategy yeah, and that's I where mean, we are now isn't
0: it yeah it's it's a, it, that is kind of where we are that is kind of where i mean certainly we are where we have to reassess our strategy um you know it it's 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 a, it's a broken economy it's a broken system and we are at the broken end of it you know we are at the place where that pursuit of more material stuff no longer contributes to our quality of life and actually can actively undermine it and so our challenge actually is to do exactly what you said is to create a kind of system that isn't you know maybe we didn't even do it irresponsibly maybe it was responsible when we did it but it's not responsible now it's actually beyond the point of offering human benefit um in the scale of of the kind of poverty that we're looking at in the poorest nations so The difficulty is, do you want a growth-based system as such in those poorest nations? You desperately need to bring them out of poverty. But you don't want, in the process, to lock yourself into the same virtuous circle stroke vicious cycle that we ended up with here. You actually need different priorities. You need to define development differently. You need to define jobs more securely. You need to define what quality of life is in more meaningful ways. And actually you can do that. You need, We need to do that in, in, our, in, our, in the richest nations, but it's also a useful thing to do in the poorest nations because the last thing you want is to create the same trap that we're in here, but in other parts of the world.
1: So going back to your analogy to addiction, the methadone gets you off the heroin, but that doesn't mean that being on methadone is good. Is a
0: good no, that's absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah, no, um, yeah, um, it, it's it's, and and in a way, you know, it, it's it's not as though we can say, well, it, heroin's bad for us because we're addicts, but it's good for people who aren't addicted yet because it will give them an instant high. You know, it's the same, <laughs> if you like, It's, it, it, the system itself, the dynamic itself, is one that doesn't work, and so that's you know that need the need to create a different kind of economic system is a bad paramount. workman
1: blames his tools
0: yeah um, <laughs> it, it it you know the argument that we did it all irresponsibly I mean actually I have huge respect for for people like Keynes who who really did you know I mean he he, he was the father of the kind of economic system that we have and he built it at a time when um, you know there was a huge global recession and lots of people didn't have jobs but unfortunately he built it in such a way that we then became reliant on that system beyond the point at which it was useful really and 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 it had encoded in it it had all those little system errors it had those little errors of perception like you know we're the kind of people who really need material stuff and so we better create a system that delivers it actually it turns out we are up to a point But we're also people who care about, you know, our families and our friends and the strength of our community and the quality of our lives and actually immaterial things, social things, psychological things, you know, in sense of self-esteem.
1: And that really is the whole problem, the chink in the armor, if you will, is that by becoming a system of understanding, a feedback loop of quantity and quantity alone anything that can't be judged based on its quantifiable nature is completely left out that's why yeah, economics yeah. doesn't account for the environment that's why it doesn't account for job satisfaction yeah family it systematically community.
0: excludes that i mean it doesn't just leave it out it actually systematically dis- discourages those bits of us that don't support the system the growth of the system it's it systematically discourages Altruistic behaviors, non-materialistic behaviors. We, what, we, do we, why, why, why would we want altruistic, immaterial people pursuing, you know, social? You're actually you're doing the wrong thing for the system because you're not a proper consumer. You're not you, to be to be a proper citizen. You have to shop, and these are the people that we've created. These are the values that we created. We've done it in the service of this growth-based system, and we've systematically excluded those bits of ourselves that are actually perhaps the richest parts of what it means to be human.
1: So it's almost like we've been sold an image of ourselves and the people around us where we believe that we're consumers rather than citizens, that we exercise our power through financial means rather than through real political action or personal action. And then what happens is by believing in this idea that everyone is selfish, self-interested, out for their own good, interested in the lowest price for the best goods, and really that's what defines us, By believing that about everyone around us, we feel alone. We feel like, if everyone's like that, I must be like that too. You begin to suspect your own motivations, Mm. and then it feels very difficult to take a step, build a community, build a movement, because you are still thinking about everyone that you may possibly get involved with as these same selfish, self-interested yeah. beings. And it undermines yeah. our ability to become a cohesive community.
0: It's very disempowering. I mean, actually, the sociologists saw this, you know, 100 years ago, talking about alienation as as part of the, the, the progress of, of capitalism. It's very dis- disempowering but it's also profoundly wrong and actually we have really strongly grounded psychological theories and 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 understandings from evolution evolutionary theory that tell us it's wrong um you know that the the understanding the strongest understanding we have of human nature is not that you know we're these wonderful fluffy altruistic people but we are always in a tension between selfishness and altruism and we're always in a tension too between this novelty seeking hedonism and the kind of conservation tradition groundedness and it's these tensions that define our characteristics and what we've done in the economic system we've we've systematically encouraged the novelty seeking hedonistic selfish person and we've told people that's who you are that's what it means to be human just that little narrow part and once you see that actually it's not only sort of explains much of what we've done in creating a consumer culture but it also offers you the way out it's incredibly empowering it's not about further restraints it's not about restriction actually it is about opening out what it means to be a human being
1: now your work with the sustainable development commission unfortunately has uh has been adjudged to be over by the sitting government that we have now. Could you briefly touch on what you feel you accomplished with the commission while you were there and what we're going to miss now that it's gone?
0: All kinds of things, really. I mean, we some of our work was really prosaic. It was just everyday work of telling, of, of making it clear to government that actually they could do things much better, not just in a policy way, but actually even in the government estate. So, we, for example, we identified... The ways in which different departments could save themselves money (laughs) public money by greater energy efficiency by less waste in the department by better um, material management in departments so actually you know carbon saving energy saving money saving in the government of the order of 10 to a thousand times bigger than the annual budget of the bbc of of the sdc so it, it was it was a you know it was a you're cutting off the prospects for identifying a more efficient government in material terms um, by getting rid of that sort of advice. Um, and then, of course, there were also the you know the work the work like this ability to to think more over the long term. Governments have four-year lives between l- electoral periods, and the ability to think over the long term is severely constrained. An organisation like the SDC can provide advice. Which c- is able to think over the long term. It's, it's able to think strategically. It's able to get out of that mindset that says, I'm locked in this vicious, vicious cycle. How do I need to keep going around the next revolution? It's a way of thinking strategically. And that's a huge loss. The ability to think strategically is a loss. The ability actually to create real savings in, in, in public spending through sustainability is, is a huge loss. But the work will go on. I mean, the sustainability is not something that is ever going to go away. And the, the short-sightedness of a government that thinks it can almost wind down the language of sustainability and get back to business as usual, you know, it's got a shelf life of a few years at most. This crisis should have taught us really, you know, a lot better than that. It should have showed us that we need this long-term strategic thinking. And, and the one thing that I think I take incredibly positively out of the work that I did in the commission is that there is a huge appetite for it i may not be employed by the commission (laughs) anymore but actually the appetite of people real people to engage in this conversation and say yes it matters has been huge i mean i just don't stop really at the moment the invitations to go and engage in conversations in all sorts of places about exactly this issue has been has been like stepping into a maelstrom actually over the last couple of years and that will certainly go on past the end of the SDC.
1: Tim Jackson, Professor of Sustainability at the University of Surrey. Well, still current, possibly soon former <laughs> Economics Commissioner at yep. the Sustainable Development Commission. Thank you so much for joining us yes, today, Yes, It's been
0: sir. a pleasure. I really Thanks. appreciate it.
1: And uh, yeah, that's been us for today. This has been the Critical Mass Podcast on economics and economic growth. Thank you very much for downloading and listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll be back soon with some more information on our ongoing journey to possibly a better future.